Good morning. I'm just going to turn this to the side. Okay, before we begin, I want to give a little disclaimer. It is 11.07. I'm on my fifth cup of coffee, and I'm exhausted. I've always thought that when it came to sort of circadian rhythms and sleep cycles, there were two types of people, right? The early bird and the night owl. What I've learned this summer is that I was wrong, and I've learned it the hard way. You see, as children move from tween to teen, they become an entirely different animal. <laughs> Their sleep habits, total food consumption, the hygiene. I can't count the number of nights that Xander and I have been dragging ourselves up to bed. When Seemingly, these children who have been lazing around all day, unable to move their bodies, are coming alive. <laughs> ben, Hannah, and usually Josh are at home just consuming enormous amounts of food. And it's insane. It's like they're vampires, but they're vampires that we have to feed. <laughs> I'm sure we'll adjust, but it's been a summer that has been characterized by fun, but also exhaustion. So if I stumble over my words or I lose my place, it's not me. Blame the children. <laughs> but whether you're an early bird or a night owl, a sleep-deprived parent, or a zombie, this message today is for you. Each and every one of us today can leave this room healed, restored, and transformed. Notice I didn't say informed. Too often, if we're really honest, that's how we go about engaging with the good news we get every Sunday, right? Oh, very informative. Thank you. Thank you so much for that sermon. Really, really helpful. It's a discussion topic for lunch on Sunday afternoon, but that's where it stops. This is the word of God. Thankfully, not the word of cat or Alex or Ben the word of the living God. And Isaiah 55 tells us that his word will not return void. It will always produce fruit, and it will always accomplish what he wants it to do. I have to trust that promise in order to drag myself up here, because this is not my forte, <laughs> not in my natural man, at least. And ever since I agreed to preach, the enemy has been at my back constantly, just telling me all sorts of things, like, you can't do this. Get Sandra to do it last minute. It's fine. My biggest fear, of course, being that I'm going to be so bad at this that I render what the Lord wants to do today, like, completely null and void. Thankfully, God brought Isaiah 55 to my mind this week and reminded me that my insufficiencies are not somehow so powerful that I can make him unpowerful. So we're all trusting him together today. I'm putting my faith over my fear, and I'm praying that we will all trust him, God willing, to get into the wounded places of our lives and restore us. I wonder how many of us in this room have the guts to come completely, honestly, and openly before Jesus today. Place our whole messy selves 
before his word and allow it to seep into the marrow of our bones and change the way that we live in the day to day. Because that is the only way that this land we aren't supposed to leave our problems at home when we come to church, even though that's kind of what we're taught, right, by society. It's the opposite. We've got to get all of our problems and just dump them right here in front of Jesus and our Christian brothers and sisters. Lay it all out and seek supernatural healing. Learn from all the accounts we've learned in this series, from the people who come desperate and ready and seeking healing, like the bleeding woman, the friends of the invalid, the blind man. We need to do whatever it takes to get our healing from the only one who can really, really provide it. And I also want to let you know that our God is not only a God of time, he is a God of timing. So if you're here today, in this room, or you're listening online, either right now or in the future, and you really want what Jesus has for you, then feel free to take this personally. Because even if you didn't realize you'd be hearing this today, he did. He knows exactly who is going to be engaging in this message. And he is not only the power to transform and heal, but because he is a God who is for us, he wants to. He wants to heal and restore us. Let's pray real quick before I get started. Father, we want healing. We need it. Please help us to open our hearts and our minds and listen to what you have to say to us today. Lord, please speak through me and just tender all of our hearts to something that can change us today, that can make a difference in our lives right very now. You alone have the power to change and transform and heal. We submit to that today, Father. In your name. We pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew 12, and we're going to land in verse 9, but I kind of want us to back up a little bit just to give us some context. If you look at chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it's only three verses, but they are some of the most wonderful, compelling, beautiful pieces of Scripture. And just for this part, I'm going to be reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. So it's a little different than what you have in your Bibles. Because sometimes it's just really helpful for me to read from a different translation, a passage that has become a little too familiar for me. Verse 28, this is Jesus talking. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke, learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't you want to just sit a spell and just drink that in? Like a glass of iced tea on a hot Texas day? Anyone else in here burdened, weary, in need of rest? I mean, you heard my confession at the beginning. Just imagine if we really, truly took God up on that promise. Doing a wee bit of commentary work on this segment, what the scholars would tell us is that when Jesus is giving us this invitation to take up the yoke, that word yoke serves as a common metaphor for the law, both in the Old Testament and the New. So he's inviting us to follow his teachings, yes, but also his definitive interpretation of the law. 
contrast is assumed that it's between him and the Pharisees. And that's what we're about to see being played out in chapter 12. For anyone who's not that familiar with who the Pharisees were, I dug up a little bit of extra information from Strong's Bible Dictionary. So they're a sect that started after the Jewish exile. They sought for distinction and praise by outward observance of external rites and by outward forms of piety, such as ceremonial washings, fasting, prayer, almsgiving. You don't sound too bad, right? The definition goes on. Being negligent of genuine piety, they prided themselves on their fancied good works. Okay, less good. Apparently, there are more than 6,000 of them. So Jesus was well outnumbered. They were bitter, bitter enemies of Jesus and his cause. And as such, they were severely rebuked by him for their avarice, ambition, hollow reliance on outward works, and affection of piety in order to gain popularity. Take out that word Pharisee, and you might think we're talking about some of the uh, influencers of 2022. Unlike the yoke that Jesus is offering in chapter 11, their yoke was to take on a life characterized by heaviness and burden. They saw their ministry as handing down laws to people that were basically impossible to uphold. But it wasn't a problem for the Pharisees because for whatever reason, the rules didn't always apply to them. They managed to kind of find loopholes. One commentator said, they were hypocritical religious dictators, not spiritual leaders. Okay, so that's the setup. Two different yokes. Jesus, Pharisees. So look at verse 1. We see it's the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are walking around the grain fields, and Matthew tells us, they're hungry, so what do you do when you're hungry? They begin to pluck grains of head, um, heads of grain to eat. But it's Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees, plucking grain, even when you're hungry, equals work. So when they saw it, they say to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which it was not lawful for them to eat, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying here is incendiary. He's defending his mates for eating on the Sabbath, so he's already got the Pharisees' backs up. But when he says that something greater than the temple is here, meaning him, and declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath, what he's doing is affirming equality with God. And that was a big M-O for the Pharisees. Possibly my favorite part of this interaction is how Jesus kind of challenges their intellect or at least their pride as purveyors of the law. He says to them twice, have you not read? These guys have crafted entire identities as experts in the Torah. They've likely memorized most, if not all of it. And he's asking them, have you not read that bit? It'd be like going to Alex or Ben and saying, hey, 
have you read the one about Noah and the big animal boat? Like, yeah, yeah, we have. Oh, yes, they were very informed. But as we'll see in a minute, they hadn't let that informedness take root and move them toward being conformed and transformed. See the difference? We can get in a whole world of trouble if all we are is merely informed about the Word of God. We can listen to all the sermons, study commentaries, memorize scriptures, even write books about Christianity, but if it stops at information, if we don't ingest it, feed on it, like my vampires do on steak at 10 p.m., then we might as well use our brain power and our time to learn a language or perfect a skill. Look now at 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? Jesus says to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in a pit on Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I love that he always does this. Notice how they ask him a question specifically so that they can accuse him. He's Jesus. He knows what they're doing. He knows he's there trying to trap him. And instead of saying, guys, I'm not answering that question. Duh, I know what you're doing. He takes a minute to delve into the question behind the question. And he answers brilliantly, like he always does. They've asked if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. He responds by asking them a few questions and then saying, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, as in, don't you like good? Then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches it out and it's restored, healthy like the other. Then the Pharisees leave and they, they get together and decide how they're going to destroy Jesus. What strikes you from this passage? This is a phrase we said in England all the time in our Bible studies. And it's something I still use today when I'm just delving into the scriptures and I'm trying to figure out a way to just get into them and, and try and understand them better. I wish we had time to hear from everyone. Um, but that's the kind of thing we do in small groups, which is much more my forte. <laughs> but just for the interest of time, I'm going to go through what struck me in rapid order. One, man in synagogue, withered hand. Kind of an obvious one. Two, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question in order to accuse him. So that word, accuse, stuck out. Three, Jesus tells the man to stretch out his hand, and the man obeys, which is number four. And presumably in doing so, he's ignoring any death stares from the Pharisees. The Pharisaical stink eye, as it were. Five, the hand is restored, healthy. And six, as a result of this healing, the religious leaders do not go, yay, your hand, it's better. Instead, they huddle up and try and figure out a way to destroy the man who has just healed a fellow Jew. Guess they don't like good. So they've accused, and now they're plotting to destroy. Two different yokes. What also occurred to me was that within the healings that we've looked at thus far, this is probably the least we know about the person being healed. We have no idea how or if his faith played any kind of role. 
We don't know how the ailment affected his life. And we don't know how he responded after the healing. All we know is that he had a withered hand, and when Jesus asked him to reveal it, to stretch it out, he obeyed. Okay, so imagine with me if Jesus, knowing that this man needed a healing that was presumably possibly hidden under a cloak or something, and he had approached him, and he said to him, stretch out your hand, but instead of obeying, he decided to trust the yoke of the religious leaders at the time. What if he was like, my hand, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't need any kind of healing. I am perfectly fine. Look, healthy hand. We'd think that he was, as my father-in-law would say, not quite the full quid. We wonder who would refuse to be honest about an ailment that most certainly was affecting their life when a healing is being offered right then and there. And yet, we do this all the time. How are you? Fine, fine. How, how are things with you? Yeah, good. How are things at home? Perfect. Everything's so perfect. The ways of Jesus offer healing, wholeness, restoration, transformation, peace, freedom. But because we're too proud, too ashamed, too protective, we hide our ailment. Sometimes we do it because we're listening to the voices of the Pharisees around us. So we refuse to be vulnerable and honest about our withered limbs. And don't we at least have one area in our life where we are withered and we need healing? I know I do. One of my favorite scholars taught me that secrets manifest. We think we're covering our withered limbs, but the truth is we are living out of our woundings in ways that we aren't even understanding ourselves. And our culture is just so helpful. It's awash with pharisaical thinking and advice for these ailments. The messaging we get from social media, society, Hollywood, self-help gurus, is exactly the messaging that the Pharisees were putting out there. Accusation, condemnation, reputation, Clean the outside of the cup. That's all anyone wants to see. Just hide the disaster that lies within. Push it down. Push it down. You don't need healing. Look at you. You're coping just fine. Asking for help is weakness. We'll get healing later when it's more socially acceptable. Is it working? We have marriages in ruins. Kids who are more isolated than ever. Some on the brink of self-harm. We have health problems that we are too fearful or proud to admit. We have financial strain, physical struggles, concerns about how we're just coping as a parent, issues with anger, rage, addiction to myriad substances, websites, people. We are addicted to approval with unhealthy obsessions with money, titles, and achievements. The list can go on and on and on. And every single one of these things is killing us literally, day by day. And we've tried it all. Oh, how we've tried it all. To follow this advice as a means of deliverance. It's not working. Even if some of it is working some of the time, nothing is working in a sustainable, liberating, long-term way. Do you know what would be awesome today? Can you imagine the 
effect and impact it would have on our lives and the people around us and the whole world if we just had the bravery and the humility to admit to God and to our trusted Christian brothers and sisters that we are broken. We are hurting and we are not coping. We need deliverance. I mean, if you can't stand any kind of deliverance in any aspect of your life, good for you. I don't believe you, but good luck with that. But if you want to be done pretending that everything is just fine, you want to rest in the healing love of Jesus, then I have some very good news. What we see in Jesus, what we see just in these few verses today, is rest, power, intelligence, wisdom, mercy, kindness, chutzpah, deep love, and full-scale restoration. And when Jesus brings restoration, it's not like the restoration we're familiar with, like things we see on YouTube. See something good that's fallen into disrepair, and so you sand it down a bit, add a bit of lacquer, and like, poof, it looks good. He's not limited to that, thankfully. He can bring sight to a man who has never seen in his entire life. He can bring sound mind where one never existed. He alone can bring life out of death and decay. He can take a relationship that's gone from good to nearly dead and make it incredible. He has the power to bring healing, health, and wholeness that we never thought we'd experience in a million years. All he asks of us is obedience, love, and the willingness to stretch out that withered limb and expose it. Will we always be physically healed? We all know the answer to that. But if we confess our sins, our needs to him and to trusted brothers and sisters, we call them together to pray for us, and we stretch out our withered hands for everyone to see, we are guaranteed by the word of God to be raised up, to be healed in ways that are far better than physical healing. We have got to stop listening to the voices of the Pharisees that tell us to craft our images to perfection and refuse to share with anyone the messy reality of what is really going on in the withered places of our heart. Revelation tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's you and me. And it says that he accuses us day and night before God. What this means is that until we get home with a capital H, we will have an enemy of our hearts and souls who will never let up. The Pharisees in this account accused. They were often accusing. That's because they are working in league with our enemy, the devil. Not just to hurt us. He wants to destroy us. It sounds scary until we read on in Revelation where it says that our accuser has been conquered. In fact, what it really says in Revelation 12, 11 is they have conquered him. That's us. He's been conquered, overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We all have Pharisees in our lives. Whether they're influence, influencing us on social media, through so-called religious practices, the prevailing culture of the day, or whether 
We're living with our Pharisees. I experience pressure and accusation in a personal Pharisee every day. Because every morning when I wake up, there she is, staring at me in the bathroom mirror. I am the Pharisee that seems to collaborate the most with my accuser. But you know what breaks the cycle? What saves me from giving in to the whispers and shouts and manipulations of the enemy? Confession. Stretching out my withered hand and confessing my true state of being. To Jesus, first and foremost, yes. But just as importantly, to my trusted Christian community. Be it the incredible ladies in my women's groups, my best friends, or my family. I have to humble myself enough before the Lord to admit my struggles and ask them to pray for me. To keep me accountable and to remind me of the biblical truth that his mercies are new every morning. What if we really did this? We really can just stop it. Stop hiding behind social media, our smiles, our small talk, our Enneagram, the walls of our houses, and just stretch it all out. What I'm not suggesting is that we just verbally and emotionally purge ourselves on anyone who will listen. That's not healthy. What I am suggesting is that we cultivate trustworthy relationships within this family, with our fellow Christian brothers and sisters. Start to open up, be honest, share. Refuse to let the enemy accuse you afterward as well, because he will. It's that breakdown of communication that Xander mentioned. He'll try and convince you that you've overshared, or that your people, your safe people, they're going to judge you. It's a lie. We're called to cultivate trust within the family of faith and confess. But we never get anywhere close because we refuse to even stick out a withered toe, much less a withered marriage, a withered credit limit, or a withered self-image. We need a place to start, get to know people in this church through serving or small groups. And if you need a place to start immediately, because your withered arm can wait no longer, I can give you a list of 10 people who I know will listen and pray and not judge you. We're so fearful of being judged and defined by our pain and our woundings that we decide to ensure that we are defined by them by refusing to get them out there and get them open and dealt with. Jesus restores. The enemy accuses. And he uses the breakdown of communication, which is rampant in our day and age, to do it. Stand firm. Stretch out. Take the information of God in your life and turn it into the restoration of God for your life. Galatians 5 says, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Have you guys not read that? Church, let's do this. Let's cultivate trusts. Secrets and have-truths have exhausted us enough. Rest in the promises of God and obey him. Let's be living letters of recommendation to this hurting, depressed, isolated, self-obsessed world. Our enemy has already been defeated. 
Let's start to live like we believe it. Amen.